Hello, everyone, and welcome to another installment of the CODcast from Commonwealth Magazine. I'm Michael Jonas, and I'm joined this week by Sam Tyler, who is president of the Boston Municipal Research Bureau, a business-funded watchdog agency here in the city, and Stephanie Hirsch, who's a performance management and municipal operations consultant uh, who lives in Somerville. And uh, we are going to talk today about a uh, timely topic, and that is charter schools. And specifically, we're going to be talking about the issue of charter school funding and financing, which has really sort of emerged as, I think, the, sort of the central issue in the debate uh, that's animating the, the ballot question campaign uh, that Massachusetts voters are going to weigh in on on November 8th. Uh, the ballot question is asking whether whether uh, the state should be able to authorize up to 12 new charter schools or expansion of existing charter schools per year uh, above and beyond the existing caps that exist. So it set off you know, a huge debate across the state, and a lot of it has to do with this question of what's the impact of charter school funding on district schools. And you know, the principle, I guess, that's, that, that, that keeps being raised, uh, is raised here, is this idea that uh, funding follows students in whatever schools they go to, whether it's district schools or vocational tech schools uh, or charter schools. And, and so, and there's been some, a few reports, including one just recently that the Mass Taxpayers Foundation put out that said essentially the system is working. If you look at the macro level, just under 4% of the students in the state attend charter schools and exactly the same percentage, just under 4% of all public, uh, uh, public school funding is going to charter schools. So it, it sounds like things are, are, are working as intended. Is that a fair assessment, Sam? Well, if you are just looking at the formula, um, yes. I mean, I think uh, you know, the Mass Taxpayers Report does a pretty good job of explaining charter funding or financing. Um, you know, the, the uh, Chapter 70 school aid, state school aid, uh, foundation budget level. Um, and, you know, if you follow the formula, this is how it works. I think what it also acknowledges at the very end of the report is that, you know, it's not attempting to explain or understand the budgetary issues that each school or each school district, each city and town has to address with, uh, you know, students leaving. You know, the other issue is, um, you know, there's also the question of, um, you know, they're taking our money. Uh, and I think both the taxpayers report and the report that the Research Bureau issued in April uh, does explain that how, how Chapter 70 works the funding and that it's based on the, the state's determination of the total number of students going to public schools uh, and that charter school students are public school students and so the calculations includes them as well um, and so the money that's going to the charter schools goes through the same formula that that uh, it does for the, the chapter 70 money going to the cities and towns and I think, you know, the, the taxpayer report does explain that, but, you know, it, it does not really deal with the budgetary problems or, or challenges facing the, you know, the school district or the cities or towns, um, you know, based on that formula. And there's other issues which we can talk about in terms of whether the state really is fully funding what its obligation is. Right. And so, I mean, I think you're right that there has been in the debate this uh, this line that the charter schools are draining the money from from public schools, and 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 the answer to that from 
from some folks and certainly charter supporters is that it's not their money it's money that you know we we allot you know a combination of state aid and local money generated from from local tax revenue to support public education and and the charters are public schools but i guess stephanie you have looked at though this question of how uh charter funding is a, is affecting uh district systems and uh I should just mention now that Stephanie and her husband uh, have come up with a web tool uh, that, that tries to really tease this out and lets you go in and look at uh, each district really in the state uh, with some uh, of the figures already built in there on, on their pop, uh, school enrollment size, per pupil spending, teacher salary averages, et cetera, and kind of work through uh, the effects. So you, you've tried to sort of take a look at how how charter funding plays out over a period of years in terms of districts' ability to sort of deal with, you know, the sort of challenges that Sam is saying happen at the district level. And what's the sort of what's the upshot or what's the conclusion that you draw, the take-home point from, from that exercise? Yeah, so um, I just affirm the, the, the caveat that the Mass Taxpayer Foundation report um, lists at the very end, which is that it's extremely painful to make these cuts locally, especially in a short period of time. So if you take, uh, just for example, using kind of round numbers, if you have a school that has a second grade with 60 students and then five students leave from that second grade, um, the, the, their, their tuition follows them, just as no, everybody agrees that the tuition follows the child. Um, so if you had uh, three sections of 60 students with 20 students in each section and then you lost five kids, you could either continue with three sections of about 18 students, 19 students, um, or you could eliminate a section and uh, eliminate one of those classes, remove, um, lay off the teacher or, or not fill the position that was um, um, created through attrition or retirements. Um, but then you would have a remaining class size of 27 or 28 students. If a district decides to go ahead with keeping the three sections, they need to cut, find the, the, those tuition payments from another source. And their options are the same as any options that exist when you have a deficit. You could cut from other types of spending like um, support programs like reading teachers, mental health services. You could cut enrichment like um, specialists, music, art, physical education. You can cut central administration, like assistant principals, um, people who deal with um, um, student issues, wraparound services. You could raise fees. You can, um, uh, you can have the municipality try to kick in more money um, to cover the gap, at least in the short term. And this is ex just exactly what um, Sam's group talks about in the Boston Municipal Research Bureau uh, report from April. And when that happens, you, you will see that the per-pupil pupil expenditures will increase because you have a new source of revenue coming in to cover that gap. So to, to even at the same time, those per-pupil expenditures increase even at the same time that many of these other types of cuts and points of pain are happening. So in reality, a district and a municipality will do all of the above. They will try to raise fees. They'll try to make class sizes larger. They'll... Um, cut some programs, they'll forego new initiatives, and they'll try to um, sub, you know, put more in the budget from the municipal side. So it's, to me, the per-pupil measure is not a good indicator of the real experience of, of instability at the municipal level. And, and so, I mean, I think what, 
I, I guess the point maybe to sort of sort of sum it all up is yeah. sort of the devil's in the details or that or that getting from here to there is what's difficult at, at a certain point if you had if you were dealing with a budget that was uh, sort of commensurate with your population student population size you could figure out staffing levels facilities needs all those things would work I mean if, if we take the example of Boston which is you know let's say in theory Boston's district was half the size it is now so it'd be what roughly you know in 28,000 students or something like that you could build a district for 28,000 students and fund it but I guess the issue is these as we're going through this this these transitions with students leaving is where there seem to be these these very painful and difficult uh, adjustments that have to be made and, and Sam in your report I guess I mean one big conclusion was that Boston has kind of you know I guess you would say sort of postponed the day of reckoning or as it's been for a variety of reasons very difficult to to sort of grapple with with the need to deal with sort of excess capacity or to use the term that people are now using a lot in this discussion to right-size the system yeah I, th I think that uh, I mean, we showed that as taxpayers did that the city is spending more per pupil uh, for BPS students than it is spending or uh, charged in terms of uh, charter school students but that's more because the difference of more special ed students more English language learner students in the Boston public school system which accounts for that difference the only reason that Boston's been able to do that is the fact that the city has maintained a practice that 35% of total spending would be allocated to the school department and Boston has been fortunate in that with new growth new development that its levy has increased by almost 5% every year you know which means 2.5% over the base levy increase allowed under proposition 2.5 so it has had the money uh, the school department has still been in has had difficult financial or budget challenges um, more because it really hasn't addressed the fact that 10,000 students who live in Boston are now going to charter schools. And so we have, in the school system now, there's a excess capacity issue, which they're starting to address, but it's still going to take time because they've got a, they're just finishing up a 10-year facilities report, and it may be a while before they really get to addressing the excess capacity. But that's a problem. I mean, and it's difficult. I mean, it's a matter of... You know, if there's only one student leaving a classroom, well, it's not much you can do. But you know, when you got 10,000, um, the system needed to have addressed that earlier, and now they're doing it. But it's 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 going to take some time. Uh, but it's only because the city has continued and has you know the city assessment uh, charter school assessment over the last five years has increased by something like 111 percent um, school spending has increased by 25%, but that's more than police and fire, which is about 19%, and all the departments, which average about uh, you know 13% in aggregate. So the city has been able to protect the school system by its practice and the fact that it has the resource to do that. But, I mean, that's where question two comes into play, and the increase that that would allow if approved the question then is, would the city of Boston be able to continue to support the schools at 35%? And I, I don't think it would. And the, about this process of the municipality putting more money into the school district pot, 
Um, you know, I've been through so many different budget planning processes, and every time you you get ready for the next fiscal year, you think of this. You think carefully about what what where are the gaps. So we know in Somerville, it's out of school programming, it's mental health, it's it's, it's um, wraparound services, it's housing, and a bunch of those are covered by the municipality. And so when we get to putting together the budget, some of them get funded and some of them don't get funding based on how much money is available. And so when you make the cuts on the municipal side, you know, it does end up affecting, in some cases, depending on where you make the cuts, the same families who would be receiving services from the school. So it is sort of the same pot of money and a subtraction from the municipal side to pay for the schools doesn't, you know, is still potentially a su subtraction from the whole system of support services for families. Um, and just an, a point on the this right-sizing, which is, su is such a um, clinical term for something that is really so painful when you get into those community meetings. Um, but if the question two passes, one of the most troubling parts of it for me is that there is no new finish line. Um, if, you, if you increase the charter cap by a certain percent, which I don't want to do either, but if, you had, if that had been the proposal, we would know that Boston, Somerville, other communities go through this period of, point, um, of, of transition, of pain, of um, closing schools, of collapsing sections, cutting, and then they get to a new st stability. And once you get to that new stability, I think it's reasonable to say there's, there's not really a cost implication. You know, it's just a different sized district. Right. But to know we have to go through, let's say, about eight to ten years of this transition period, and two years into that transition period, we have even a new proposal or an expansion of, and we know we're right next to Cambridge, so Cambridge is with a extraordinarily high per pupil spending. Will I can only imagine see many new proposals if the cap is lifted. Um, so I can imagine talking to a family, thinking... Well, would they really? I mean, they're not at the cap now. They could they have are proposals at the cap. now. They are? Cambridge's? They, well, anybody who's... There are, I think, eight or nine districts that are closed. Mm -hmm. And then there's many more who are within 150 seats. So if you have a new... If you have a charter management company looking to site a, a school someplace, they would pick someplace that had a, you know, a larger capacity. I mean, Boston, for example, is at capacity, but that includes... Uh, seats that are are expected to be filled over the next couple of years, yeah. but for you know the, for fiscal seventeen, it's filled. And if this question doesn't pass, there would still be about four thousand seats that would be added, charter seats right. added to Boston over the next ten years, yeah. just because the the spending would increase and that would change the net school spending, right. which affects you know the, the allotment, how much you can yeah. sp right. spend on charters. Yeah. Right, and I mean. In, sort of a broader view on it that is one that the Mass Taxpayers Report does bring out is that um, is that this issue around charter funding and how districts uh, deal with it is not that different, they argue, than other kinds of school choice programs that the state has, and that they're all kind of modeled on the same premise of the funding following, and, and that they even sort of say, in total, there's more, there are more students if you uh, add together the vocational technical student population and the school choice program. It's even a little bit more than what we have in charters. So uh, how, how, how is this so different than, than those and, and, and which districts have had to sort of absorb and, and adjust to? I mean, I think for Boston, it's inconsequential in there's so few choice students. Right. And the dollar impact is, is so much less. So mm -hmm. it really is the charter 
I mean, there's it's again the ten thousand versus right. maybe right. one hundred and fifty. So and, it's a huge difference. And isn't one 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 issue related to that though, Sam? I wonder about in terms of this ability to, uh, if we won't use the term right size, to make the painful adjustments that are necessary. Is that you know so much of the charter growth has been in a in a handful of. Uh, Communities, I think the Taxpayers Foundation said 75% of the growth since the 2010 cap raise mm -hmm. has been in eight, eight districts. So uh, it, the difficulty or the disruption is, is, you might say, large, but it's it's largely in places that, you know, to your point, that you know, if you have several thousand students, you could imagine a district um, being able to make tough choices and 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 figure out how to deal with it, as opposed to. It's not as if these are sort of sprinkled among several hundred districts where some of the challenges that, that Stephanie, you and your husband sort of, you know, portray in your web tool, those are really clearer and, and seem much harder to solve when, when, there's, when you don't have any kind of scale. Yeah, but the question on the ballot on November yeah. 8th calls for, you know, 12 new schools um, and it would be no more than, you know, an increase of 1% statewide if a one percent per district, that might be more manageable. But right, and then it's it's uh, you know if if there's more than twelve proposals, then it, the preference would be to districts that are low performing, uh, and so it would be the same districts that have more charter schools now that would get so even more charter. You schools. would worry about a sudden surge of well, I think yeah, of I, numbers all at once in Boston. I mean, Boston's made it work, but if there were even if there were three new schools each year. Um, the, you know, the assessment increase would be fairly dramatic and there would be, I think it would be extremely difficult for the city to maintain the practice of 35%. So mm -hmm. a budget that already is squeezed because of personnel costs and other costs increasing greater than revenue uh, would even be more stressed out and more dramatic cuts would have to be made, which is, I think, basically the reason that the mayor is opposing this question. Mm -hmm. And then we know that that sort of destabilized and stressed district has to work extra hard to retain students and recruit the students at the same time that they're trying to figure out where to make cuts. So it's it's a they're really in a vulnerable position, and, and it, it does seem like a vicious cycle. Um, I just want to say a point about the the Boston the MTF reports uh, a comparison of choice and Votech. Uh, choice is something that districts have a chance, an opportunity to opt into or not opt into. So that's a really significant difference. Votech, to me, it does make sense, just personally, uh, you know, if you have a, a demonstrated need of a child for a different type of educational environment um, that the district can't offer, it does make sense that you might put more protections for that child and for that family. But, you know, in my looking at the data on, on whether or not charters serve um, more special education students, they serve fewer. So just even in, in Somerville, um, you know, our charter serves 14.1 4 special percent special education students versus the 21.9% in the district. So if, if this legislation or had been modeled on figuring out new ways to teach the hardest to, to, to serve children... And you know, uh, right, figuring out the right funding formula for that, and giving districts some way to plan with these charter partners, to 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 demonstrate models that really reach kids who who, you know, are, are have you know maybe on the autism spectrum or have anxiety disorders, or or ADHD. Then it seems like it would be a different story, and there might be more justification for it. But that just doesn't look that way to me in how the the legislation is structured. 
Well, and, and we haven't talked about, you know, the, the state's um, obligation to fully fund, you know, the charter tuition reimbursement, which it hasn't. I mean, for the last three years, which includes this fiscal year, I mean, Boston is receiving $48 million less than the formula indicates it should receive. So that's one of the reasons, frankly, that the legislature never could come to an agreement on, on the charter questions because the concern was we're not fully funding you know, the reimbursement now, if we increase this, how are we going to fund that? So I think, you know, should this question pass, uh, clearly the, the owners would be on the state to come back and, and fully reimburse the charter school, you know, reimbursement. And then we know that if the state does fully reimburse the reimbursement and if that reimbursement grows, that is money. You're basically paying for the same child twice, and that's money that you could be spending on early childhood. On, I personally would love to see um, funding a aid tied to data, to sort of um, a protocol of school improvement using data in particular and implementing best practices. So I would love to see the, the state's. Um, a school assistance program really build on best practices and 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 help districts succeed and tie that to aid. So, you know what? That could be great a great way to spend that money that we would otherwise spend on increased reimbursements if it's fully funded and if that reimbursement obligation grows. Uh, well, it's it's sort of a conundrum I think on the reimbursement because as you're saying that we do kind of end up paying twice and it could be used for other things. Yet it is the it is kind of the one part of this that creates a little bit of a cushion to help districts do the kind of adjustment that, that we're saying is can be so painful in a way, right? Well, and, the, and right now it's a, it's a formula that uh, carries over for six years, right? You know, 100% the first year and then 25% each year thereafter for five years. I mean, there have been proposals to, you know, streamline that to three years and, uh, you know, make it more equitable, but not... And maybe concentrated only in, in right. uh, sort of in the districts with the most charters. Right, and it would be, I think, revenue neutral the way it was originally structured. So there, there's other options there regarding the, the reimbursement. Mm -hmm. Well, we'll see if that if that gets sorted out. First, the voters are going to have to sort out the, the bigger question uh, mm -hmm. on November 8th, but uh, we're probably running running low on time. Um, is there anything else? Were you about to jump in and add something, Sam? Well, I, I'm just going to say, like in, in Boston, uh, you know, there has been an effort to have work with the charter schools in terms of a, a, a collaboration. Um, right, so-called compact, right? The yeah, Boston the compact, compact. Uh, but also use it in terms of, uh, you know, the, the sequencing of, of schools uh, from elementary to high school, uh, you know, making sure that each district has a high-performing charter school as part of the options available to uh, you know, the, the, the parents. I mean, uh, each region of the city. Yeah. Right. Um, I mean, we we also have uh, raised the issue of the current contract negotiations going on between the school department and or school committee and the, and the Boston Teachers Union and arguing that this needs to be a reform contract so that they can show that they, they can be competitive with the charter schools. But um, that doesn't seem to be happening. But that... Um, and, and that factors in, I think, in terms of how people would think about, um, you know, voting in Boston anyway on, on question two. Right. No, and I think you're right. And, and I mean, sort of just as Stephanie, you're saying, the sort of right-sizing term might be a little too dry or too clinical. Um, you know, I mean, the fact that we're, we're talking about, you know, movement of kids in slots, I mean, there really is, you know, beneath that, 
what's under that under that is the demand, you know, among parents, and there's still a lot of concern in Boston about, you know, the, you know, I guess you could say uneven performance of the district system, and a lot of parents still clamoring for some other choices, and that's sort of ultimately what, you know, sort of is 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 fueling the the interest in charters in in these districts. Yeah, and there could be, as has been proposed in legislation, but not enacted. Um, you know, because charter schools are, are uh, citywide schools, and so that contributes to the the busing costs of the of the uh, school system. So there could be authorization that charter schools could be more neighborhood. Uh, you know, basically recruiting from within a neighborhood as opposed to citywide. So those are other issues that ought to be part of whatever is finally decided regarding the charter schools. I know a lot of people on the no on two side disagree with that, but I, I like that um, proposal that you had in, in your report, especially because one of the reasons You're I... You're talking about the, the um, re, um, unified enrollment? Um, I don't know if it'd be unified enrollment, but at least having a neighborhood preference for, for, for charter enrollment. Right. Because one of the things that breaks my heart is, and this may just be nostalgia, but I, I'm, I'm, I really care about neighborhood schools and, pe and people in the same neighborhood going to school together, even, you know, no matter what their background... Um, but I think it's really hard to encourage more cooperation between the district and the charters, uh, and whether it be coordinating on transportation or, I mean, on an enrollment process or it be sharing practices, because right now they're set up to compete. And we know that every child, so, for, so our, our local charter school every year gets the addresses of everybody in the Somerville Public Schools and sends them this beautiful glossy <laughs> brochure and really actively recruits them. And, it's, and we know that every time we... Um, you know, if, if Somerville can s support the charter, we're very likely to lose children to them, which means we lose, you know, I just calculated it. We need to make, um, you know, have 450 uh, bake sales in order to make up for the loss. Uh, <laughs> you know, so it's just, it's really painful. It's really personal. And my, my daughters, both of my daughters see a reading teacher who was only put into place after Somerville had enough money to pay for one. And it made a huge difference. And I'm a well-off family, so if it makes a difference for me, there's and my, my kids' school has 70% low-income kids, those kids don't have any other option, or not many of them do. And on that personal level, when we see that money going out, it makes it so much harder to, to do that collaboration. So if we can fix, if this gets, if this fails in, 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 in the polls, in, in, the, in the voting booths, Let's go back to the drawing board and find ways to fix it. And it, it seems that there's so many more ways you could fix it. There's so many better versions of this that 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 incentivize collaboration, that help charters serve the hardest to serve kids. That you know, um, if t to me, I would love to see our, our our charter school much more integrated with our our district schools. I th actually think they're very similar. You know, in, in practices and performance, and yet they are set up, our, our state sets them up as opponents with extraordinary stakes tied to who wins. And, and I think that's just the wrong direction for, for ed reform in our state. Right. Well, I think there was, you know, there really was the beginnings of, of some movement in Boston, at least ar around that compact and, and, and more collaboration and cooperation. And, you know, uh, you know, Mayor Menino, toward the end of his tenure, and Mayor Walsh have certainly tried to articulate this idea that these are, you know, these kids are, are the concern, all of the kids in the city, you know, were concerned with their education. That was kind of the underpinning of it. I think you're right, maybe that the, the ballot question has created sort of some tensions there, but it may be possible to, to, to still get back to a point where where we're looking at things that way. Yeah, I mean, there had as part of the the uh, 
collaboration, there's been a, really a discussion in terms of how charter schools could be part of the feeder system, um, you know, in, in the neighborhoods, uh, and so that they work together, that it's really all one system, right. mm -hmm. right. maybe a charter school, but it's really uh, integrated with the public schools. I mean, that would be the ideal, but I think the problem we have with question two, it's really a blunt instrument, yeah. um, and it, it it makes it more difficult. It, it's, you know, if if it were changed somewhat, you know, in terms of instead of 1% statewide, it's 1% in, in each district, and it's not that great a movement uh, in, in terms of increasing uh, each year, then that, mm -hmm. that might be more manageable and uh, mm -hmm. one that, that could work. Well, I think we'll have to end it there, but on that somewhat hopeful note that, uh, that maybe there'll be uh, 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 more, more collaboration had uh, in terms of how we educate kids across the state. Uh, I want to thank you, Sam Tyler and Stephanie Hirsch, for coming in. And you've been listening to another installment of the Codcast from Commonwealth Magazine. I'm Michael Jonas. Subscribe to the Codcast via SoundCloud or iTunes. We'll see you again next week. Thanks, everyone, for listening. Thank you.